The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Today's reading is found in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. If you are using one of the Bibles uh, underneath you, uh, you can find that on page 869. Uh, it also should be behind me on the screen, so feel free to follow there as well if you'd like. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, des- but he desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This is the reading of God's Word. You may be seated. So as is very apparent this morning, uh, we are right in the middle of the Christmas season, right? I mean, and the question is like, can you feel it? Uh, Not like do you feel the Christmas spirit, which some of you obviously do, or at least look like you do, but do you feel that kind of gnawing in the back of your mind or deep somewhere in your gut, like that pressure of Christmas? It could be a pressure of like certain things you've got to get done, uh, gifts that you have to buy, uh, food you have to make, events you have to plan for, traveling plans that you have to make, things they have to get ready for. I remember before Meg and I have kids, it seems like a lifetime ago, but I remember before we had kids how simple traveling was. We didn't realize it was simple. I thought Megan packed a lot at that point, and she, she is a heavy packer, but... When we got kids, I realized, wow, this traveling thing is a totally different beast. And then you put Christmas together with it, and all that pressure to, not just to get those things done, but do you feel the pressure of like, I have to, this pressure that I have to feel certain things at this time of year, right? I have to feel jolly. 
I have to feel warm. I have to feel the Christmas spirit, whatever that elusive thing is. I have to uh, have a nice holiday demeanor to my wife and kids. And is that pressure of all these things to do, and yet all these things I feel that I'm supposed to feel and experience. And then as a believer, if you're a Christian, you feel this depth like, man, not only do I have to feel the holiday spirit and guide my family in it or guide myself in it, or, uh, and I have to get all this stuff done. But then this other gnawing pressure of like, this has to be a meaningful season. We're celebrating the birth of Christ. I need to not be distracted by that. So you have all these competing pressures gnawing in the back of your mind, the back of your gut. It can be very distracting. And the shopping thing itself brings an incredible stress. All of its own, right? We got to get the perfect gift for you the significant other or for your kids or for your family. People that you don't know very well, you have to find the perfect gift for them. My son, he's six, he's six and a half, and his Christmas list, we've, we've, he's, he's done, but his Christmas list has changed two times since he gave us the Christmas list that we bought stuff from. So the things that he's asking for now is not anything that he's getting. And it will probably change again once or twice before we actually get to Christmas. So it'll be an old land and we'll be buying stuff for by the time it comes around. And you're like wondering, will, every, will he even appreciate it? I have to get all this stuff done. I have to get the presents bought. I have to get them wrapped. Wrapping is the big, like we can get them bought, but getting them wrapped is like an act of Congress in our house. It's like a really big deal. It, is, it has more than once devolved into a night of tears on Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve two years ago, I called the night of tears. It was a, it was a, it was a very sad time. It involved the phrase, you ruined Christmas for me. This was uttered by somebody. It was a rough, rough night. There's a a lot of pressure going on to these gifts and buying everything. And this is the whole question of like, am I going in debt to get this stuff? Should I go in debt to get this stuff? Will I ever get out of the debt that I'm in to get this stuff? There's a lot of pressure. In the, in the season between Thanksgiving or somewhere around Thanksgiving and Christmas, the, the American retail industry does somewhere between 20 to 25% of its total volume in sales in that month. 20 to 25%. Some sectors, it's higher than that. It's somewhere in close to 30% for some sectors, including jewelry, which is why you cannot watch five minutes of TV without there being a Jared or Zales commercial. And you picture these two like, now that's got to be a lot of pressure. I'm so glad I'm not single again. I'm sure a lot of ladies are too, but I'm so, so glad I'm not single again because there's a lot of pressure like to be these good looking couples that magically he gives the beautiful giant ring to the girl and it starts snowing and there's light coming from the ground. Like that's a lot of pressure for to, to be in, but it's, so no pressure that you're already feeling about the gifts and the decorations and the travel and everything, but because the retail industry relies so much upon this month between Thanksgiving and Christmas, the American economy rests upon whether you're going to get your kid that Lego set or not. So no pressure. Black Friday which is what kicks it all off the day after Thanksgiving, 
is traditionally viewed as, as the day, well, that was the, I think it may be a marketing thing. I've done some research on it, but the reason it's called Black Friday, they told us for a long time, was because that's when re, the retail sector moves from red to black on their balance sheet. That's when they make enough money to actually start to turn the corner and the rest of the year how well things go is whether they're going to be profitable or not. And I think that we view our idea about helping others in sort of the same way. Like the day after Thanksgiving and from that day till Christmas is the time that we have to fit in our good deeds for other people in order to feel, because that's another thing we have to include, not just the buying presents and helping other people, but our good deeds for other people, our giving, uh, charities in America, they... Uh, they expect somewhere around 30, some charities, 40% of their giving will come in between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Americans almost double the amount of volunteer hours that they normally give between Thanksgiving and Christmas. It's still not a high number or a high percentage, but it nearly doubles in both men and women in this time of year. It's sort of like we get to this time of year and we... Think about Christmas and what it means and how it's supposed to be helping each other and caring for the poor and caring for other people. And we feel like this is the time of year that we have to get into the black when it comes to helping other people around us. But the question that comes in then is, just how much do I have to help the people around me in order to move from the negative or the red to the black? How much do I have to help the people around me to get on the positive side of the ledger sheet? How much good is enough good? Now, we probably wouldn't have public conversations generally about that because you and I are too nice and too holy to have that conversation, but I guarantee you every single person in this room, just to free yourself up, has those conversations in our head. Just how much good do I need to do for, to the people around me so that it's good enough? And that's exactly what's happening in this conversation between Jesus and this lawyer or this expert in the law in Luke 10, 25 through 37. It's a conversation where the man actually asks Jesus, he verbalizes the question you and I have in our mind and says, who is my neighbor? What he's really asking is, how much do I need to do good for those who have need and exactly who do I need to do it to? If you just tell me that, Jesus, then I know what mark I need to hit. We have certain measures in giving like it might be 10% or whatever is in your mind and then you get to the end of the year and you say oh I need to give X number of money to get my numbers up to that point or maybe you're just looking for a tax deduction and you're trying to get your numbers up to a higher level but we all have an idea when it comes to giving and I think we have some sort of idea when it comes to helping the people around us too and this exchange that Jesus has with this lawyer is expert on the Old Testament and the parable that he ends up telling about that we call the Good Samaritan, though I think it should be labeled something different. Jesus shows us three things that we're going to look at this morning. He shows us the need for a neighbor. He shows us the problem with our neighbor. And he shows us the answer 
to our neighbor problem. He shows us the need for a neighbor, the problem with our neighbor, and the answer to our neighbor problem. It starts off in verse 25. Dale just read for us a lawyer. And so what a lawyer would be is he would be uh, an expert in the Old Testament law. So whenever you would come to him, and it could be lots of questions, lots of issues that would happen uh, that between people or a question that you might go to a lawyer today to deal with the, our set of laws, you would go to him and he would consult what the Old Testament law said and he would tell you what you need to do or he would help you come to an agreement with the person they have a problem with. So he was an expert on every jot and tittle of the law. And they were very, very serious about the requirements of the law. Those, uh, the Pharisees and the people who were really serious about following God at this time, they consulted, uh, they paid very careful attention to everything that they did. If you, if they came to your house, and I don't know if people do this anymore. We used to do this when I was a kid because we lived in the country. And like, if you realize like we're out of sugar or out of ketchup, it was not practical. Like you just either, you just didn't make what you were going to make or you actually went to a neighbor and asked for a cup of sugar. I don't know if people do that anymore because I think we don't like to actually see people face to face or neighbors face to face, which is something we'll talk about this morning. But you, if you go, if you, they went and asked for somebody for a cup of sugar, they would take out a tenth of that cup of sugar and set it aside to give to God. They were that careful about everything that they did. And these, this lawyer, he was an expert in the law. It says he sat down and he was talking with Jesus and he said, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Thank you. I think you just wanted to show off your get up this morning. He asked them, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? But what it tells us is that he was looking to put Jesus to the test. That means he was looking to trip Jesus up. Because up to this point, Jesus, early, verse eight and a half chapters of Luke, is really telling us about who Jesus is. And now going forward, it's showing us what it means to be a disciple or to follow Jesus. And Jesus has been very forgiving up to this point. And he spends most of, his, most of his ministry being forgiving and compassionate to people that nobody expects him to be forgiving and compassionate towards. And so this, we think this expert in the law got up to ask Jesus this question because he wanted to trap Jesus. He thought Jesus was going to say, hey, what you do doesn't really matter. So, hey, I, God loves you. It doesn't really matter what you do. Everything's going to be okay. I've come to tell you that God loves you, and it doesn't matter whether you've messed up or not. He'll look over that. But that's not what Jesus says, and that's not what Jesus was about either. And so he said, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus turned around and asked him a question, which is my favorite uh, it's my favorite tactic as well. When somebody asks me a tough question, whether I know the answer or not, always ask a question back. It's the best response you can possibly get. And, and frankly, by the way, this man, he didn't, I mean, he didn't believe in Jesus, but, you know, challenging the God of creation to a debate is probably not a great idea, but he didn't know what he was getting into at the time. And he asked Jesus, what shall I do to hear eternal life? And Jesus said to him, he asked him a question in response, well, tell me, you're the expert in the law, what is written in the law? How do you read? it. And the man gave a really brilliant answer back to Jesus. He sums up the law in two statements. And he says, well, here's what it says. It says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. 
Now, we could stop right there. I could preach a sermon on that, and we could all go home feeling very bad. Because there is no one in this room who loves the Lord their God with all of their heart, with all of their soul, and with all their mind, and all their strength. That's what the law requires of us. And then he said, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Go do this and you'll live. Now, the man who was sitting across from him, not only was he a lawyer, but he would have been a very devout Jew. He would, have ha- he would be living every part of his life that he possibly could to the letter of the law that God had required. And whenever he messed up, he would have a sacrifice that he would make to pay for that debt. But as he's sitting across from Jesus and he says, this is what's required of us, he realizes, I'm not doing that. I can't do that. And anyone who is in this room that thinks that you can or that we can, we are under delusion. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart. No part of your heart that's divided and cares for anything outside or above or equal to Jesus. Love him with all of your strength, all your strength that you have in your body, that you have with your life, every waking breath, every waking part of your life, everything that you do, whether in word or in deed, in pleasure or for work, do it for his glory, in love, not just for, not just for him, but out of love for him him with all of your strength, all of your mind, every thought that you have. And if you feel that you're nailing all of those, then love your neighbor. Not just love your neighbor, but love your neighbor as you do yourself. And I have to be honest with you guys, I don't care for anybody the way that I do myself. Because I care more about myself than I do anybody else around me if I'm really honest. But that's what's required of him. And so he feels this sort of pressure that, yes, that's what's required of me, and no, I'm not nailing that. And so he has a response to Jesus as, but desiring, verse 29, to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? That's that question that we're talking about, right? How much good do I have to do to the people around me? And who exactly do I have to do it to so that I know that I'm no longer in the red or the negative, but I'm in the black? And Jesus tells them a story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, I just want to pause here. If you're a Christian or been a Christian very long or you've been around church for very long, you've heard this parable a half a gazillion times. And you and I are likely to read it and picture ourselves as the Good Samaritan. Because we'd like to think that I'm not the priest that walks by, because the first guy that walks by is the priest, he's a pastor. He's going down from Jerusalem. He probably, we think he probably would have just spent his month-long service in the temple. And now he's going home. And the road down from Jerusalem to Jericho was literally a road down. It was about 17 miles and descended over 3,000 feet from Jericho down, from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And along that way, so it's not an easy way to go, 
There are caves and hiding places all the way down. It was a very dangerous road. In fact, there was a stretch of this road they called the bloody path or the bloody pass or the bloody way. It was a dangerous stretch of road to be on. So when Jesus starts to tell the story, everybody would know the section that they're going through. It's sort of like talking about a really bad section of town. Megan and I accidentally found ourselves on one of the murder capital, the street murder capital of America in Baltimore and had no idea how we got there or how to get out of it. It was, it was, it was one of the scariest, but I, we were lost. I didn't want Megan to know that anything more than us being lost. I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's just up here. We're going we're gonna to find our turn off. And, and she's like, I'm scared. We have the doors locked. I'm like, hey, it's nothing to worry about. My, my knuckles are like white knuckled around. And I'm like, God, if you get us out of here, I will do whatever you, like, you know. <laughs> So everybody would have known the stretch that they were in, which by the way, don't take, it's not, if you're ever in Baltimore, it's not the light after Martin Luther King Boulevard, it's the left at Martin Luther King Boulevard, otherwise you'll find yourself in that section at night and it's not a good section to be in, but I digress. You find yourself on this, he was talking about how the stretch of road, everybody would have known how dangerous it was. And the first guy he says that comes by, this man comes down this road and robbers jump out and they almost kill him. They leave him for half dead and they leave him naked. A naked man, half dead on the road. They didn't just rob him. They almost killed him. They left, as, they left him to die on the road. And the next man comes through and he's a priest. He's a pastor. He's coming from his month-long time of the temple probably. And you and I like to think that we're not him Because he comes by and he sees the man half dead, or not just half dead, but a dying, naked man on the road. And it says he looks at him and he goes the other way. I like to think, no, I'm not him. The next guy is a Levite. He would be like the equivalent of like a worship leader or a deacon or a community group leader at your church. And he comes by and he sees the man. He looks at him. And he goes around him and goes the other way. We like to think, well, I'm not him either. The next man that comes is a Samaritan. And he comes by and he sees the man. And it says, this is a key, it says he has compassion upon the man. And he went and he had wine and oil with him. And he pours the wine on his wounds, which would be, well, they didn't know as an antiseptic, but it would have been an antiseptic. And then he would have poured oil on the wound to help ease it. He would have dressed the wound. He realizes the man cannot walk. And so he puts the man on his beast. And he walks as he guides the man on his animal. And he takes him to an inn. And he takes him to the inn and he cares for him there. And after he cares for him, he goes to leave and he gives the innkeeper two denarii, which is the equivalent of two days wages at this time. We think it would have paid for somewhere between 24 and 40 nights at an average inn this time. Because this man, again, he doesn't just have like a hurt leg, he is almost dead. And he tells the innkeeper, here's my money. It's probably all the money that he had because what he tells him is, and if you need more, I will pay you the next time I come by. Care for this man. So Jesus asked the man, asked the lawyer, after he tells him the story, 
He said, which of these three, in verse 36, which of these three men do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, well, I guess the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him again, you go and do likewise. Now notice, and this is interesting, that Jesus doesn't ask the lawyer if the injured man was the Samaritan's neighbor. Remember, that's what he asked him. Who exactly is my neighbor? Who do I have to show help to? And how much help do I have to show before I know that I'm, in, I'm not in the negative anymore? I'm in the plus. I'm out of the red. I'm in the black. Jesus asked him who was the true neighbor to the injured man. The injured man was the neighbor to all three men who passed him by. But only the Samaritan neighbor to him, if you'll let me use that as a verb, which you will because I'm the one talking. He, only, they, he was the neighbor to all three men, but only one of the men neighbored him. Only one looked at him with compassion and cared for him. What Jesus is saying is that we are all neighbors to everyone. We don't get to choose who we're in obligation to be a neighbor to. Every single person that is surrounding us is a neighbor to us. And what that means is that means that we have to view, first of all, we have to view people differently than we do now. It means, first of all, we have to see the people around us as neighbors. Not just people who are neighbors in the sense that they happen to be beside us. We happen to live by them or work by them or walk by them or drive by them. But seeing an obligation that we have to the people around us to be a neighbor, to neighbor as a verb to them. It means not only do we have to see the people around us as our neighbors, but it means that we have to see, we actually have to see the needs of the people around us. This one gets me. Because in theory, I would tell you, if we were to sit around and we're having coffee and we're talking, I would tell you, yes, according to the Bible, every single person I pass is my neighbor. But I rarely pay enough attention to the people around me to actually be able to tell you if they have a need. That's something I've been praying. I've put it on my to-do list because I'm just that callous a person. I need a reminder to do it. I'm praying, I have a, a reminder every morning to pray that God would help me to see the needs of the people around me and see how I can care for them. Because I'm most likely to not even, not just not care, but not see them in the first place. Do you see the people around you? Do we see the people around us for who they are? Do we see past the veneer and the smile and the front that they put on, either in person or on social media, and actually see or try to see what's going on in their life, to see the hurt and the pain that they are in or going through or just coming out of, to see what they have need of? But not only do we have to see people differently, we have to view ourselves differently. We have to be willing to be inconvenienced. This Samaritan was on a business trip. And he probably didn't have time to stop and pick up and care for a half-dying man that might just die anyway. 
He didn't have time to care for him. He didn't have time to take him to the inn. He didn't have time to be detoured from his trip, from his day. He didn't have time to care for him and stay the night with him and make sure he stayed alive. He didn't have the money to spare that we think that to be able to actually pay for this man's care. We have to be willing to be inconvenienced. We have to be willing to be detoured. We have to be willing to serve outside our comfort zone. This man, this Samaritan was not a doctor. How many times do I, have I found myself or have you found yourself in a situation where you see a need but our response is, I'm not the person to fill this need. Somebody else who has expertise in this area should do it. This man did what he could with what he had because it was the need that was before him. All that mattered to this man in the moment was this man was in need. He was not a doctor. He did not know how to properly care for this man. I don't know if he had a first aid class or I have no idea, but he cared for this man even outside his comfort zone. And it was outside his comfort zone because going over and caring for this man was actually a foolish thing to do. It's one reason why the priest and Levite walked by because if a man was just robbed and beaten half to death and he's dying on the side of the road naked, what does that mean? It means a dangerous stretch of road. Somebody could be hiding in that cave right there and could be waiting for me to walk over and care for this man and they're going to kill me too. Or this man could be an imposter and he's luring me over there so I, will, I won't have my guard up and they're going to jump me and take me down. This man could be faking. This could be a trap. It was outside his comfort zone. It was dangerous. It was a foolish thing for him to do. But he did it. We have to view ourselves just only have to be willing for things for things to cost us. This hits me. I am, I am willing to help people. I'm willing to give people money, write a check. Time is, the, is a stickier point for me to give you some time as long as it's extra. But when it costs me, that's when it gives me pause. We have to view ourselves differently. Most of all, we have to be willing to be moved with compassion. We're in the middle of the Christmas season and we it's the season to help people, right? It's the lesson that Scrooge learned after the, the three visions. Keep Christmas in our heart all year round. But are we really willing to be moved with compassion when we see needs around us? But don't we want that? Don't we want to, isn't part of the reason that we celebrate Christmas and we, we watch Scrooge again and again and we watch Charlie Brown and we watch The Grinch. I mean, the story, that's the story of The Grinch is seeing need in other people and helping them and how it makes your heart feel good and you grow, you, your heart grows and the light around you glows and the Christmas sees like, isn't, but isn't that what we want? Isn't that why it's so appealing to us? Because we want to live in a community like that. We want to live in a community where we're cared for like that. We want to live in a community where I care for people like that. I think like that and I feel like that. But you know what the problem is? We can't even keep Christmas at Christmas, much less keep it all year round. 
We get too caught up in our presence and the gifts and the parties and all the other stuff that we get just so distracted. We don't see the needs around us or we don't care for them. First of all, Jesus tells us that we have to see the need for a neighbor. But then he tells us that what's the problem? The problem with our neighbor. So here's the problem. Not with you. Well, it is with you and I. But the problem with our neighbor. The problem is we see needs around us. We know there are needs around us. The problem is a motivation problem. It's the same problem I have when I'm trying to eat well. It's really a motivation problem. It's, it's an easy choice to choose to eat broccoli instead of that coconut cake that Megan has in the refrigerator from my birthday. It's an easy choice. But the problem is a motivation problem in my gut. That's a difficult thing to change. And that's why the lawyer asks this question, who is my neighbor? He is dealing with a motivation problem. I can't find the motivation to be this person that you're calling me to be, to love the Lord your God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the neighbor as myself. So I need to ask you, exactly how far do I need to go? All right, Jesus, I'll play your game. I'll acknowledge I need to help people. Just tell me exactly what I have to do. When can I know that I've crossed the finish line? When can I know that I've done my duty? See, that's the situation the priests and the Levite were in. They had done their duty. They're come, the reason they're coming down from Jerusalem is they served in the temple and they're going home. And, and in their service to the temple, they would, have, uh, they would have cared for the poor. They would have observed the Sabbath. They would have cared. They would have worshipped God. They would have helped the needy. They're done. They've clocked out. They are leaving that and they're going down to spend time with their family or relax. They've clocked out. The problem in this parable is that the man who helps, we call him the good Samaritan, but whenever they would have heard this story, this parable from Jesus, they would have heard him as the evil and foolish Samaritan. Because the problem is the Samaritan was not a Jew. They were half-Jews. They were half-breeds that were viewed as dogs by the Jews. They, the Samaritans were half-breeds between people who were Gentiles and the Jews themselves. And they said, we don't worship God at the temple in Jerusalem. We worship God at our own temple, at our own mountain. And the Jews rejected them and they rejected the Jews and there was animosity back and forth between them. There are stories of Jews who are passing through Samaria in order to worship in Jerusalem who were, who were hijacked and killed on the way. A, Jeru, a, a Jew would not touch a Samaritan. They called them dogs. They viewed them. And so when Jesus says a Samaritan comes through, they would have heard an infidel is walking through the area. And that infidel that worships God wrongly, that says that what God says in the word is not true, they worship God in the wrong place, in the wrong way, this person 
he comes in and he foolishly helps this man in this state where he, where he gives all that he has. He gives his time, his energy, his compassion to this man in a place that was dangerous. He cares for him. He goes and cares for him extravagantly above and beyond the call of duty. This was an evil man. That's why down at the end when Jesus asked him, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? He responds, he says, the one who showed him mercy. He wouldn't even say the word Samaritan in return. The problem is that you and I generally say, I'll help with any problem that I see. I'll help with any problem that I think that I think needs fixing. I'll help anyone that deserves help. I'll help anyone who has been a mistake. It's their first offense. Hey, first time, I'll help you. Second time, you should have learned your lesson by now. I'm gonna move on. We say, I'll help anyone that's helping themselves. We'll say, I help anyone who believes like me. I'll help anyone who looks like me, that acts like me, that does what I think they need to do. The problem is that we all view helping the needy in the wrong way. We view, we view, we use helping the poor to guilt other people into helping. We view it into guilting ourselves to help. We view, uh, we use helping the poor to help ourselves feel better about ourselves. We use helping the poor, helping the needy to make ourselves look better, to make ourselves be better. That's what that's part of what drives me crazy this time of year. Like, we'll take as many volunteers at, a, at as many good causes as we can possibly get, but I see so many people who come to this time of year, they do a little bit of good, they feel better about themselves and they move on and they forget it the rest of the year. We're using helping the needy to make ourselves feel better, to justify ourselves before God. But what happens when those conditions aren't met? What happens when there's not enough guilt to make me and make people around me actually help people? What helps me when I don't feel bad about what I see around me, when I drive past people or I'm talking to somebody that needs help and it doesn't move my soul? What happens when, when no one is looking and no one's around to see the need, no one's around to see me help the person in need, or, or I'm not even sure if I need to be better? All the, all the motivations that we use to make ourselves and the people around us do good and help people, what happens when those conditions aren't met? In those cases, the motives fail. And so do our actions. So do you see what Jesus did here? What's the answer to our neighbor problem? Jesus didn't lower the bar and say it doesn't matter what you do. He didn't lower the bar and say it doesn't matter what you believe. He radically raised the bar. He changed the game. He, he changes the justification game that you and I and we all play about helping other people because we are all losers in his version. How much do I have to do? How many neighbors do I have to help? Who do I actually have to help? Who is my neighbor so that I can know I'm no longer in the red, I'm in the black, I'm no longer negative, I've done enough to be in the positive? He says we are all Losers in that version, the priest, the pastor, the Levite, the worship leader, the lawyer, none of them were good enough. 
the way the world would look if we, if we could live up to that standard is far better than the way our world looks today. The answer to the problem, because really the problem is in my heart with my neighbors. I don't care enough about them. I don't think they're good enough or deserve enough, so I'm not gonna give it to them. The problem is because I view myself above them as some sort of judge to them. But look at back in verse 27. He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. The answer to our neighbor problem is that extravagant love for God results in reckless love for other people. Extravagant love for God creates reckless love for the people around us. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and mind, and strength, and then your neighbor as yourself. The way that we get to that kind of neighbor love, to neighbor, to care for people around us in a deep way is by loving God with all our heart and our soul and our mind. That kind of love creates a people who neighbor intentionally and neighbor extravagantly to the people around them, regardless of whether they deserve it or not, regardless of whether you think you can actually save that person or not. He did not know that Samaritan did not know he could save that man or not, but he said, I'm going to put everything I have at this moment into trying. But where does that kind of love, that extravagant love for God that creates reckless love for others, where does that come from? It comes from a heart that has a fresh realization of the fact that you and I have been neighbored extravagantly and recklessly. That Samaritan who saw the man on the side of the road and he probably knew he was a Jew. He knew he hated him. We don't know what was going through that Jew's mind, but maybe when he saw the man who was caring for him, whether it was whenever he's putting him on his beast or whether he is in the hotel room and he would have come to a horrible realization that a, I'm being cared for and saved, but I'm being cared for and saved by someone who I hate and loathe. That's what Jesus did for you and for me. By nature, we hate and loathe God. We are his enemy. There was nothing desirable in us for him. We were his enemies, his sworn enemies, far away from him. And yet he came to us and he didn't just have to risk his life like the Samaritan did. He gave his life. He sacrificed everything that he had. He put it all on the table. He was, as Jonathan said last week, he was all in for us when we were lying there, not half dead, but totally dead beside the road. And he came and he breathed life into us when we could not care for ourselves. And there was nobody else that was going to come on the path who cared enough or who was able to care for us and bring us back to life. He cared for us. And when you and I have a fresh realization of how we have been neighbored by 
the great neighbor, the truly good man who came along and saw us and cared for us and gave his life for us. And we have a fresh realization for that, then our emotional bank account is full and we can put it all on the line and recklessly and carelessly and extravagantly love the people around us no matter the cost, no matter the time, no matter the effort. What does that mean? It means that as we leave here, as we, if we have a fresh realization of that extravagant love of God for us, then we should be intentionally looking for ways to extravagantly love the people around us. It may start with just getting to know them. Megan and I have started here. We've lived in this house, and now this is to my personal shame, but we've lived in this house for nine years, and we know one set of neighbors, and we just kind of saw the other set of neighbors. And so over the past few months, we've been actually trying to have conversations with them and get to know them and go in their house and sit down and, and talk with them and, and see what's going on in their life. It may start with just getting to know somebody. Then it will evolve into actually get, seeing where they have need and deciding, you know what? God has loved me extravagantly and recklessly. And if it slightly or greatly inconveniences me or my family, I'm okay with that. Because I can't withhold the kind of neighboring love that Jesus showed me to the people around me. It will mean if we follow in these footsteps, if we, if we follow what God is saying here, what Jesus is saying here, it means that we as believers will live lives that look foolish to the people around us. That's, that's our legacy as Christians. Christians since the beginning have been a people who sacrificed their life for the people around them even when it cost them their life. There are stories of plagues that broke out in, in cities in the, during the time of the early church and the Christians knew they were probably gonna contract the plague that was going around, but they said, I'm gonna care for the sick and dying regardless of what it costs me. And the outsiders who saw that saw that there was something real and solid about the profession that they made as believers because of the radical reckless, extravagant, neighboring love that they show to the people around them. I hope that will be our testimony. Uh, Christians do a lot of good, but I think one reason that Christians have a, one reason, there's many reasons, but one reason that Christians get a bad rap in United States of America is because people know exactly what we don't believe in, but they don't see this, that solid care that reckless, extravagant care for the people around us that under, has always undergirded the lives of believers. These bags are a drop in the bucket way that we can show compassion. I even hate to even call it compassion and neighboring. It is neighboring. But most of us, it costs us nothing to do that. I pray as we go forward, not just in this holiday season, but as we go forward as believers at Doxa from here, 
that we will be so overwhelmed with the extravagant, reckless love of Jesus towards us that we would be a people that would be marked by looking for ways to intentionally, practically neighbor the people that are around us. The people that live beside us, work beside us, shop beside us, and beyond. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.